Welcome everybody to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is Saturday, the 19th of August, 2023, and my name is Audrey Ann, and I'm a grateful recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland. I will be your host for today's study, and the co-hosts are Dottie S, Nancy J, and Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. And the chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answer session. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating or if you need to step away from your screen at any, for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the links for our seventh tradition. The money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings. And we also send contributions to our intergroup, Arizona Serenity in the Desert Intergroup and World Service Organization. We will post a link to the previous week's recording. And these are available by clicking on the link, which will be posted in the chat box. Mm -hmm. I will now turn the meeting over to Harlan G. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you very much, Audrey, and thank you, Dottie, for uh, hosting us today. Thank you for, for doing that. That's great. Um, we're going to be talking eventually about the family afterward. That is the chapter that we're going to begin this morning. But before we begin, I just want to tell you how glad I am to be here. We are basking in Arizona here in temperatures for the first time in a long time under 100. I have very distinct memories of getting up to walk at three. You know, I get up at two, but by the time I get out of the house, it's three and it would already be 93, 95, 97. It was three o'clock in the morning and it was already 95, 97 degrees. So this is just paradise for us. It's just under 100. And uh, this is just, just absolutely paradise. And um, so anyway, I hope you're well. Uh, I was near Poop Park last week, and I was perched in a penthouse that perused Poop Park. And uh, also we had a bird that came and pooped on a certain balcony, which was exciting too. So we had lots of poop all around us. And I was very, very glad to be doing that from, from the library there near Poop Park. But I'm back in Scottsdale today. Anyway, we're going to be talking about the family afterward. And when we talk about the family afterward, we are reminded constantly, both in the big book and both by our actions and both by our histories, that this is very, very much a family disease. You know, when I was growing up, I loved my mom, I loved my dad, but I got a very clear sense that there was massive dysfunction in my family. My mother and father expressed their love for one another with pots and pans flying through the air, insults flying through the air, and a vitriol that could not be cut with a chainsaw. There was constant, constant fighting in that house. There was constant, constant 
uh, upheaval, turmoil in that house. And I remember a number of years ago, now my mother and father never took an alcoholic drink in their life that I was aware of. I never saw them do it. And my mom died when I was 22. My dad died when I was 24. I never saw them drink liquor. But I remember I was on the board of directors at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club for a number of years. And one day I was at a board meeting and there was a pamphlet on the table from an organization called ACOA. It's called Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's sort of an offshoot of some other things, but Adult Children of Alcoholics published a pamphlet that was on the table during our board meeting. Not deliberately so, I think it was a mistake, but the bottom line is, is that um, we had a situation where um, this pamphlet was on there and it had like 15 questions. I don't remember the questions, but I answered 14 of them, yes. That's how close compulsive overeating is to other addictions as it manifests and wrecks its way through the lives of the sufferers of this disease. And this is very, very much a family disease, family illness. And it doesn't just, you know, we think sometimes that it just affects us. Nothing could actually be further from the truth. And the truth of the matter is, is that this disease will alter you, it will ransack you, and it will bring you to points of life that you definitely will have to work very hard to overcome. Thank God there is a proven workable method by which we can overcome obstacles that we never thought we could overcome. And those method, that method of overcoming these obstacles is the steps. But I think each and every person who's listening to my voice, whether you are listening to my voice on this Zoom meeting right now, or you are listening on a podcast after we record this, if you're listening to this and you had addiction in your family, you had a massive amount of trauma, you had a massive amount of dysfunction, you had a massive amount of fear, it ransacked its way through your self-esteem, it ransacked its way through your ability to love and be loved, it ransacked your way through the way that you conducted yourself and your life. And so for any of us who are not only addicted, but are the children or the close relatives of people that are addicted, we have residual collateral damage, not only to our addiction, but we massively have, a, we have collateral damage or trauma from someone else's addiction. And these are things that we have to really know are going to be resolved through the steps. We can't just ignore them. We can't just say, oh yeah, that was then and this is now. It doesn't work that way. It just absolutely doesn't work that way. And to get up in the morning and not hate myself and get up in the morning and not feel that 
pall of shame and remorse about you know the shame I felt when when my my mother and dad would be going at it and they they didn't seem to give a damn when and where and how they went at it it was just like the battling Bickersons it was sort of like being uh, the son of uh, uh, of Ralph Cramden and Alice Cramden really I mean you just have to know that at any given moment they could start in on one another and it was very 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 bad, very, very bad, very traumatic for me. Right, let's go to page 122, and we're going to be talking about this subject. And what I'm going to do the best I can of today, we're going to begin the chapter. Obviously, we're not going to finish it. We're going to begin this chapter. And this is a chapter that is skipped over by vision. It is skipped over in most of the big book studies that people do. It's not something, it's not a, a chapter that gets a lot of attention, but to the very best of my ability, I am going to do what I can to bring this chapter to life for you so that it becomes a little more relatable, so that it's not just a little information or a lot of information, that it becomes a source of identification. Because after all, isn't that why we're here. We're not really here for information. We are here for identification. And when we can identify one to the other, this is when the recovery becomes very effective. Remember what Clancy Immeslin teaches us. Clancy Immeslin was one of my heroes. He's passed away now, unfortunately. But in many of his podcasts, he relates this and he says, when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic so that the second alcoholic's feelings of differences begin to abate. And the second alcoholic starts to take action after action after action after action that he does not yet believe in. This is the point where recovery is taking place. So let's try to recreate that today with our perusal of the beginning part of the family afterward. Let's go to page 122. And this is a very criticized statement because it's very archaic. It's almost a sexist statement, but let's read the first sentence. It says, our women folk, and every time I read the words, our women folk, I get a mental image of either Little House on the Prairie or the Waltons. I get this image of mom standing there with the coffee, ready to pour it for dad. You know, she's this, you know, she's just this uh, whatever, you know, but she's just this doting little wife. You know, our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who is recovering. So what we're going to be doing in this, in this chapter is we're going to be looking at things, attitudes we can have with the alcoholic. Now, is it limited to that? I'll let you in on a secret. No, it's not. We're going to learn as much about ourselves in this chapter, if we're open to it, as we ever did about how to deal with other addicts. We're going to learn more about ourselves. And when we know better, we can do better. That's what I've learned in my life. You know, it, I'm never the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm just not the shiniest bulb in the box. But when I learn 
things, when I pick up information, I seem to be able to do better. And that just seems to be a pattern from the time I was a little boy, a little fat boy on Albany Street in Chicago. Let's continue. Perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. In other words, we're recovering not to be put in a museum. We recover to be part of life. You've all heard me say this many times. We don't live to recover. We recover to live. We recover to go out there and go and live our lives. And not today, but we're going to read a, a section of this pair of this chapter that I read and I engage in every day of my life that says, go, I'm paraphrasing, go live your life. We have to have some fun and we have to go live. And yes, when we do that, we're going to get knocked around a little bit. Obviously, again, I'm paraphrasing. We're going to get knocked around, but we have the steps. We have each other. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. Tolerance doesn't just limit us to tolerating others. Sometimes the hardest person to tolerate, sometimes the hardest place to practice acceptance, sometimes the hardest place to love and cherish is with the only one of two relationships that are permanent in our life. Let's take a look at something here that jumps out at me, and hopefully this will help you. I know how to tolerate the bad behavior of others. When I say bad, I don't mean because I like blue and they like red and they just won't get it. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about bad behavior, I mean addiction and you know self-destructive behavior. Maybe I should have said that instead of bad because bad is judgmental. So strike bad. <laughs> Can we strike that from the podcast? Bad? All right. So instead of that, let's just say addictive behavior and the understanding and love. It is much easier for me to love, accept, and tolerate others than it is for me to love, accept, tolerate, understand myself or God. Now, why is that? Because when you grow up as, an, uh, as a compulsive overeater, this is a disease of self-loathing. This is a disease of hatred of self and often anger and hatred to God. Now, I've heard this in four, I'm here almost a half a century. I don't know that I'll make a half a century because I got six years to go, but I've been here 44 years. So I've heard thousands of people sharing. Literally, if, if you put all the people I've heard sharing in a room, they wouldn't fit because I've been to thousands and thousands of OA meetings. I, I went every day for years. I went every day. And sometimes on Sunday, I would go twice a day to meetings because, you know, I didn't have anything else to do. So I went. 
But what I've heard over time is I'm an atheist, I'm an atheist, and I'm pissed off at God. Well, let's take a look at that. I'm not saying you're not an atheist. It's not for me to judge. But how can you be pissed off at something that doesn't exist? It's very hard for me to be pissed off at something that does not exist. So a lot of times, and again, I don't want to get into this during questions and answers. Please, I understand there are people who are atheists, and that's great. And there are people who are agnostic. And agnostic is someone agnostic means without knowledge. They just don't have enough knowledge to make a decision whether or not there is a God. And an atheist has come to a conclusion that there is no spiritual or religious deity. Some atheists, like one I know in Canada, he believes in beauty, love, truth, and goodness. Those are his higher powers. He professes that he is an atheist, and he and I have been friends for a long time. I am not an atheist. I do have a strong belief in God, and I have my childhood where I was not, you know, real happy with, you know, certain things with God. And, you know, then I felt like God gave me a bad break and, you know, God screwed me over. He didn't, you know, he didn't put me as one of the Gates family or the Rockefeller family or the whatever family. He made me into a Grabowski and I wanted to be rich and I wanted to have Rob and Laura Petrie for parents, you know, young and they sung and they danced and they were young and they were attractive and they never fought for more than 30 minutes. And after 30 minutes, everything was okay. That's what I wanted. I wanted what I saw on television. And boy, I got something very different. And I remember when I spoke at the Vision for You convention years ago, um, the first time I got off the stage, we were ending the session, they were playing the Dick Van Dyke theory as music because they had picked up that I had said that so many times. And I got a laugh out of that. I'll never forget that. That was so funny. I was done with my session and they played the Dick Van Dyke theme. But anyway, I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. And I got something quite the antithesis to Rob and Laura Petrie. Trust me on that one. But we grow up with a sense of dread. We grow up with a sense of insecurity, of catastrophizing things. Of, but we grow up with a sense of self-loathing because we have acted in ways repeatedly that was not very friendly to ourselves. And let's keep in mind, and I'm going to remind you of this as many times as I can, there are only two relationships in your life that are permanent relationships, <coughs> excuse me, permanent relationships. Now, I'm very, very lucky. I I was very lucky in my life. I have friends that I could introduce you to that I have known my entire life. How lucky am I? I have new friends. Yes. I have old friends. Yes. What would I say is more important? Neither. They both add to the spice of life, but I'm very, very 
lucky in that I have friends who I have known for at least a half a century, 50, 60 years, in some cases, all the way back to the time that I was four years old. So I, my next door neighbor, my former next door neighbor, he's not my next door neighbor anymore. He lives in Skokie, Illinois. He and I have known each other for 65 years years. Isn't that incredible? How lucky am I, huh? I'm so lucky. But there's only two relationships in our lives that are permanent, and they are the relationship with God and the relationship with ourselves. And that relationship gets violated often when we are compulsive overeaters by doing things that pull us through pitiful, an incomprehensible demoralization. How many hundreds and hundreds of times did I get up in the morning with a resolve and an oath and a, an affirmation that I was not going to eat M&Ms, I was not going to eat cookies, I would, whatever that pizza, whatever that may be, I would get up in the morning, and I would swear to God that I was not going to eat those things. And there I was eating them again. And how much shame did I put myself through when I couldn't, didn't pay my bills? How much shame did I have to go through when I got caught in a lie? How much shame did I have to go through? How much, how much ill feeling did I have to go through as I watched the world parade past me and I was going backwards and they were going forward into careers and families, and relationships, marriage, retirement, and I just stood there eating my Oreo cookies, watching them go past me. How much hatred of self can one person bear? And I wondered why I became a quitter. I wondered why I never stuck to things. I wondered why I begged God for death. And above all else, I wanted death to come my way because I knew that I could not live with the food and I knew that I could not live without the food. And so today, when I think of having the time that I have free of the compulsion to eat, you know, 24 years of abstinence, you know, it's not that I'm abstinent 24 years. That's not, that's not the prize. The prize is I haven't wanted to eat for 24 years. The desire is just not there. Remember what it says on page 58, guys? It says, if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. What is it we seem to have that is so magical? Certainly, some of you may say, well, you've lost weight or, oh, you're not bulimic anymore. I'm not, I was never bulimic, but as a group, we're not practicing bulimia anymore. We're not starving ourselves anymore. That's great. But here's the nugget. The fact of the matter is there are many people at Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and Nutrisystems that are not 
gaining weight, that are not eating compulsively. That's not what we have here. What we have is a proven workable method so that the desire to do those things is gone. That's what we have. You see, any, any goofball can exercise some willpower and lose weight. But it takes a recovered person, a person working the steps who has a disease of compulsive overeating, anorexia, bulimia, combinations of the, of the three of them that works the steps so that the desire to kill myself with food, the desire to engage in self-hate creating behaviors is simply not there. It took me 40 years to figure out, just tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, you don't have to have such a good memory. You don't have to cook up a story. Just tell the truth. Just don't eat that stuff. Just do what it is you need to do. And in the working of the steps, I have not found it necessary to compulsively overeat in over 24 years. And the truth is, I am happy in my release. Do you want what I have? Do what I do. You want what somebody has here? Do what they do. And somebody very wise told me years ago, if you want the same, do the same. If you want different, you got to do different. I have to take action after action after action. And I have to do it every single day of my life without exception. The, the disease doesn't take days off. The disease doesn't say to me, hey, you're going on vacation. I think I'll just take a little vacation myself. And after the vacation's over, I'll come back and kill you. No, it doesn't do that. The disease does not take days off. So whether I'm in Illinois, Arizona, Timbuktu, Antarctica, wherever I am, California, wherever it is I am and whatever it is I'm doing, I must remember that I am a compulsive overeater. And unless this disease gets treated constantly, it will do things to me that I would not do to my worst enemy. The disease is merciless. It's a merciless disease. And so what we have is we have a challenge, not only to be tolerant, understanding, and practice love with the addict in our life, with the, with the person in our life who gives us a little reason to do another 10 step more to, you know, that we'd like to do. You know that person in your life, they always push your buttons and you know, you're going to the 10, but to also practice these things on yourself to love and tolerate yourself. Now, how do I do that specifically? I'll save myself the question and answer later. Here's how I do that. By constantly doing things that build my self-esteem. And here is specifically what I do. I don't mean in a narcissistic way. I don't mean in a way of... Um, a narcissism or, or, or egomaniac way. No, I'm not talking about that. I am talking about giving 
to my fellow human being with no expectation of a return. And I am faced every day with choices to either give or take, give or take. And when I give with no expectation of results at all whatsoever, my life goes very, very well. When I look to take, when I look to see what I can get out of a situation, even when I'm giving, it can be evil. Because if I'm giving to you and I'm kissing your tuchas, kissing your butt, and I'm expecting you to like me or expecting you to treat me in a certain way because I'm doing that for you, that is the disease in its active form. So there is a difference between people pleasing and recovery. What is the difference between people pleasing and recovery? It boils down to two words, results and expectations. When I give to you with expectation, that is people pleasing. And that's the disease in its active form. When I give to you with no expectation of a result, now I'm in recovery. But it cannot be with that passive aggressive attitude that I would often take years ago. It has to be true giving, true altruism. That's where the recovery is. And when I seek God, I must look for him in the face of one of his children. I never find God anywhere more easily than in the face of one of his children. Recently, uh, just this past period of time, this past week, I had an opportunity to walk in a forest preserve that was astounding. I saw a cardinal. Now, I hate the cardinals, plural. I hate the, the baseball cardinals, and I hope they never win another game as long as they live. I hate the Stanford Cardinal, and I'm glad that when they lose to Oregon, I'm happy as happy can be. Don't like the Stanford Cardinal either. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals, I can tolerate a little bit here and there because I live here and that's the team. But I'm a Bears fan. I'm not a Cardinals fan. But the actual bird, the Cardinal, is my favorite bird, not because they're so wonderful, but because my favorite color is red. And I have never seen a red more brilliant, more spectacular more awe-inspiring, more absolutely faith-imbuing than a male cardinal. The females are beautiful too, but they're not as brilliant as the, as the male. The male is just red as red can be. Oh my God, I'm just awestruck when I see them. And I've seen blue jays and I've seen crows and eagles. And when I lived in Oregon, I saw a lot of ospreys. And now that I live here, owls, I love birds, as you can tell. 
I've never seen anything that inspired such awe in me as a male cardinal because of the coloring, the brilliant coloring. And I happened to see one on the walk, but the smell, the fresh air of this place was absolutely awe-inspiring. Now, why am I mentioning that? Why am I talking about that? Was that experience memorable to the point where I just can't wait to get back there? Yes, absolutely yes. But I've never found God as thoroughly and as quickly as I do when I look for him in the face of one of his addicted children or one of his ill children or one of his whatever children. I find God most easily, most readily, most quickly in the face of one of his children. So let's continue with this chapter. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude toward himself or herself. And they can have all the attitudes in the world that they want. My attitudes must come from God. My attitudes must be temp tempered with what is correct for my program. If anybody has any ideas about what I should eat, where I should go, what I should do, what I, where I should, whatever, I don't care. I really don't. I'm not, I'm not subject to that. I let it go in one ear and out the other. My attitudes, my behaviors, hopefully are going to be governed by what's proper for my program. We find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. Here is what I know. There are people in this world, and I think I'm one of them to some degree, although I've seen others that are of a greater degree. The more you pressure that person, the worse the situation gets. You have to let the addict come to their own conclusions and let them decide on their behavior. Now, that's not as instant as we'd like. We want to just push the person and then they do what we want. That's a great world, but it's not the one we're living in. It's not the world we're living in. And what we need to remember is, by nature, we are immature, sensitive, perfectionistic rebels. Immature, sensitive, perfectionistic rebels. When we were kids, I was just talking about this uh, with somebody. When we were kids, you know, you'd hear somebody, you're not the boss of me. You know, you, kids, you're not the boss of me. And this is what we're doing. We're sort of tantruming. But how do we tantrum? We don't tantrum by saying you're not the boss of me. We tantrum in line at McDonald's. We tantrum with a knife and a fork in our hand. We tantrum by exercising our bulimia and our anorexia and our restricting. This is how we tantrum. We tantrum by giving them the finger and eating more food than a family of five would eat in any given sitting. This is how we say to the world, hey, 
You're not the boss of me. And this is how we express our desire to give the finger to that idea of being told what to do. This makes for discord and unhappiness. There's the understatement of the year. And why? Is it not because each wants to play the lead? What do we remember from chapter five about selfishness and writing the script and arranging the lights, the ballet, the scenery to our own liking? If only the players would stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. I read those words every day of my life. And then I go out and try to write the script at times. I have to constantly be reminded by sponsor and by, by action that if the more I try to write the script, the worse it gets. See, I can read those words in the morning and be writing the script by noon. And that's my disease because I have a mental blank spot. And that mental blank spot is my built-in forgetter. So I can read those words in the morning about how silly it is to write the script, how silly it is to try to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery in my own way. If only the players would stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. But what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. In other words, People don't stick to my script. See, this would be an interesting world if people just stuck to my script. Thank God they don't, because God has ideas that I am unaware of, that I am unable to access. He knows things I can't possibly know. He knows things about the bigger picture that I don't know. I am so lucky to be living in a world that's God-based instead of Harlan-based. Because if you let me write the script, I would have a life that is very, very small and limited. And I would have a life that did not include recovery. There was a song many, many years ago, If I Ruled the World. If I ruled the world, I don't want to sing it for you because I don't want half of you to click out. But it was a song called If I Ruled the World. Well, what I have to remind myself of, if I ruled the world, my world would suck. My world would suck because I'm human and I can't see around a corner. Not too long ago, maybe two months ago, I was sitting on a bench overlooking Lake Michigan. I love Lake Michigan. It was my first higher power. Lake Michigan was my very first higher power. And she can be quite tempestuous. She can be quite cranky. And she can do things that cause people to adjust their driving behaviors or their whatever behaviors, because she is sometimes very violently angry. But anyway, we were, I was sitting there 
Uh, and we were looking at Lake Michigan and I was thinking how beautiful it is. And I always love to look at Lake Michigan. And then I was thinking that because of the curvature of the earth and because my eyesight is limited to human eyesight, I'm looking at a humongous expanse of Lake Michigan and yet I see very little of it because I can't see past the curvature of the earth. And Lake Michigan is 319 miles long and it's 191 miles wide. And in certain areas, it's 933 feet deep. So there's no possible way that the human eye can see all of it. Even if I go to the top of the Hancock building, which is the greatest observatory, I almost said conservatory. It is the greatest observatory that you can access to see Lake Michigan is the very top of the John Hancock building, right? What's better than that? You still can't see the whole thing because the curvature of the earth makes that impossible. Now, why am I talking about the curvature of the earth in Lake Michigan? The reason is because life is exactly the same. It's no different. You see, I am limited to what I can see and know because I'm human and mortal. God is neither human nor mortal nor finite. God is infinite. God knows things that I cannot know. And even though it may not seem like I'm getting something good now, Often I have to give him a chance. And in the final analysis, his word is going to be better than my word. And that's so hard for me. I have to work at that. That does not come natural to me. I want it. I want her. I want them. I want those. That's what I want. And what I want when I don't get it, I don't like that. And that means that the sales at the local Kentucky Fried Chicken or Dunkin' Donuts are going to increase remarkably. So the truths of the big book never change and they are constant through the book. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, is forever trying to do things in their own way. That doesn't work for me. I need to trust God. Help. I need to trust God, clean house, and help others. Dr. Bob left a prescription, and it says it's a prescription pad for Dr. Smith, Dr. Robert H. His middle name was Holbrook, Robert H. Smith. And he wrote on this prescription, trust God, clean house, help others. In other words, the first three steps, four through nine, 10 through 12, right there in simplistic terms. Let's continue with the chapter. Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he can take from the family life rather than give? We're such takers. 
or when we give, we expect results until such time as we start to live in recovery. Somebody, I think it was Mika, just posted that prescription pad from Dr. Bob on her little Hollywood square. So if you want to kind of cruise through there, uh, you can see it. It says, trust God, alcoholics, uh, alcoholics, uh, trust God, clean house, help others. Very, very good advice. Very important advice. Okay. Now the last paragraph of this page, cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. Let's take a look at that. Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. I came in here and I see this all the time. I came in here and I didn't really understand what I was hearing. I was full of fear. I was full of a defeatist attitude. I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be here. I didn't come voluntarily. I was 24 years old. I had no mom. I had no dad. I was living in a filthy, dirty, unpaid for apartment. My car had been repossessed twice. My life sucked. Why would I want to live? Why do I keep hearing people that want to live? I just want to die. Leave me alone. Let me die. And what I heard made no sense to me. So what I did was I applied my dieting skills to OA. And I would hunker down on unaided willpower and I made dieting and not eating the entire basis of the program. Let's take a look at page 19, because when the big book wants to teach you something, keep your finger in page 122, we're going to look at page 19. And on page 19, in the very first paragraph that starts with none of us makes, we're going to read a couple of sentences. It says, none of us makes a sole vocation of this work, the work being AA, nor do we feel its effectiveness would be increased if we did. Now, here's the sentence I really want you to pay attention to. And it simply says, we feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. There is so much more than just the elimination of drinking, that if all this was, was the elimination of drinking, you could go to Weight Watchers, and I'm not knocking Weight Watchers, I got no opinion, go to Jenny Craig, go to the gym, go to one of these bariatric doctors, and that's what you would need, and that's what you would do, and that would be the end of the story. But if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, in other words, do you want a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps so you can not hate yourself, you cannot hate your higher power, and you cannot hate your fellow person, you're going to have to do the steps. Because what it says on page 19 after that sentence is, a much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. 
And then what does it say there? What it's alluring to is you got to work the steps and it, it'll work in all areas of your life. Go back to page 122. So if I want what you have, I have to do what you do. I have to work the steps. I have to trust God, clean house, and help others. Because just a mere diet, I can go get a diet. I live near a million grocery stores and a million drug stores. I'm right in the middle of Scottsdale. My house is not a great house, not even close. I don't look at my house and go, wow, look at my house. I used to a long time ago, not this house, but I had another house. I used to go, wow, I can't believe I live here. But when I look at my house, what I reminded of is, A, it's cheap, but B, my location is a 10 out of 10. I'm right in the middle of the action in Scottsdale, right smack dab in the middle. So a, this, uh, not A or not B, cessation of drinking, there you go, is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. A doctor said to us, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. The trauma of my childhood is something I will be working on the rest of my life. The fighting, the, the absolute crazy behaviors, the crazy behaviors of two people that never should have been married, that never should have been together. And who did I marry? I married someone who was absolutely enraged most of the time who woke up and had this idea of being angry at me 999 days out of a thousand. And this is how I lived my life. I repeated the pattern of the strife and the arguing and the fighting and the, and this was just, it was just insanity. But it took me years and lots of work to see that I just repeated the pattern. I just used a different situation. Instead of mom and dad, I had a wife. And the wife was more my mom than she was my wife. She was mommy. She called the shots. She made the decisions. She took care of me. Well, yeah, there's things you don't do to your mom. They have nasty names for people that do that to their mom. We didn't hit, we had a very platonic marriage. We had a very strife-filled, anger-filled, fighting-filled marriage. And it was very difficult, dare I say, on all of us. On all of us. So we I had a situation where it took me years of inventory to look at some of this stuff and to emancipate from it. It was very, very difficult. And, and the most difficult thing was not focusing on what this other person did, but looking at my part in things in this, in this trauma. And it was extremely excruciating. I did not want to see it. I still don't. I did not want to see that. And so today I'm in a different situation and it's much healthier. 
much better, much more loving, much less uh, uh, strife filled. You know, it's just totally like, like 180 degrees different, total difference. And so now I have an ability to feel and I'm working on the receiving end of it, but to feel something for another person and let that in because that's the harder part for me. It's so much easier for me to love someone than it is to be loved because of the self-loathing, because of the disease. It's just so much easier to love than it is to be loved. All right, let's continue. The entire family is to some extent ill. That's very, very true. And that's why we have to work out our trauma. And if we don't work out on our trauma through inventory, or maybe you need outside whatever you need or whatever you need to do, uh, you either work on it or it will work on you. You work on it or it will work on you and you won't like the results. That's for sure. The entire family is to some extent ill. Let families realize as they start their journey that all will not be fair weather. Recovery is not just, oh, I'm in recovery. Oh, I'm so easy. Oh, I'm so... No, it doesn't work that way. Like, what do we say? Life gets lifey. There's going to be flat tires. There's going to be challenges. Thank God I don't have to face them alone. Thank God I have a power greater than myself and people who face them with me. Because so often God speaks to me through other people. Sometimes I think he speaks to me through certain people, but he certainly speaks to me through other people. He speaks to me through others. And when I hear something three times, when I hear something three times, I take it as the voice of God. I accept it as the instruction of God. And if there's anything I've learned, don't ignore your uh-oh voice. And don't ignore God whispering in your ear because he's a gentleman and he will not shout at you until you prove to him you won't listen. And then there's going to be trauma. And then there's going to be strife. And there's going to be problems. If he has to get your attention that way, he will. But he is going to get your attention one way or the other. Listen, because he isn't going to shout. He's a very, very polite gentleman. So I try not to shout over the voice of God. I try not to scream over him. Do not ignore God's invitation to serve. Do not ignore God's suggestions. Do not do it. Where God guides, God provides. If he wants you to go do something, he will provide it for you. And it may not look that way in this minute, but you will find a life and a reality better than anything you could have planned by listening to and following the voice of God. Each and every one of you know you need to have a sponsor, you need to work the steps. You need to be a sponsor. You need to help others. You need to trust God, clean house, help others. 
We all know this. These are suggestions. These are the things that God is asking us to do. And we must do them with a pure heart. He will tell you. He will ask you. And then there will be, be consequences for, for not listening. Not that God is punishing us. But oftentimes I have learned that what happens is I'm operating on self-will. And it is my self-will that becomes the draconian punisher. The draconian parts of my life came into my life because I insisted on self-will run riot. Every day I read the words, self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Says the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Page 62. So let's continue. Each in his turn may be footsore and may struggle, straggle. There will be alluring shortcuts and bypaths down which they may wander and lose their way. We can find our way. We just need hold our hand and God will take our hand like we were children. I remember I being with my mom and crossing Devon Avenue and it was a, a rule and they didn't agree on much, but this is something they agreed on. You, when you're crossing Devon Avenue in Chicago, I must be holding someone's hand. I am not to cross Devon Avenue by myself. So I learned that sometimes I could beat them at their own game. I could find a middle between the two of them. I could sometimes outsmart them. But I couldn't beat that rule. That was a rule that they were united on. You're crossing Devon Avenue. You hold someone's hand. When you cross over things in life that are challenging, hold someone's hand. Hold God's hand. And hold your sponsor or hold your recovery partner or hold someone's hand that you know is there with the word of program in your ear. Don't go alone. Don't go alone. So before we close today, we've just begun the chapter, the family afterward. And we're going to be talking over the next weeks about ourselves and the addiction or the addicts, excuse me, around us. So we want to be very certain that we apply this to ourselves as well as others. I hope as we begin this chapter that I have convinced you that this is a chapter worth exploring. Come join us in the next few weeks. Come join us. And we're going to examine this chapter together. And I think we're going to find that there are many hidden treasures in here. And I have always disagreed with skipping over this chapter. I think that this chapter is well worth the perusal and it be well worth your time. 
So I want to thank you all for coming today. I really appreciate you. Dottie, thank you for hosting today. Sue, I don't know. Nancy J, I don't know who's doing what or what's doing who. I don't know. Now, before I turn it over, I just want to announce something. Um, the birthday is coming. Don't miss it. Los Angeles, LAX Hilton. Uh, January 12th, 13th, 14th. It's the weekend of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And our birthday is January 19th. So it's always as close as they can make it to that date. And we're going to have a grand time. It's going to be great. There's going to be uh, sponsor, sponsee meetups, big book study, sober eating workshops, Scottsdale big book, Scottsdale uh, meetups, and all kinds of stuff. Come to the birthday, you will be very glad that you did. Now, before I give it back to Dottie or Nancy, I don't know who, or Sue, or uh, perhaps